0: Well, welcome again. I want to uh, once again say, if you are a visitor or a guest or you're here for the very first time with us, we want to tell you what a privilege and honor it is to have you in worship with us. We are are grateful for your time. We recognize that it takes, quite a bit to walk into a new place and and our whole heartbeat for you this morning is pretty simple we want you to have an encounter with the risen christ and we want people to be nice to you like that's our our big thing here and so uh, we're not looking to to entertain you or to woo you with our donuts it's really just man i hope you meet christ and i hope people are kind to you and and i'm pretty confident uh that those are the things that matter to us and so we're we're really glad that you're here you're coming at a really interesting time. And I told this to Brandon and some folks staying outside this morning. And these are, these are the challenges with preaching expositorily through Scripture, right? Is that we we come into things that seem somewhat isolated. So they seem like, man, this is just a, a, a singular piece of text. And it's a hard one to walk into because maybe last week you came for the first time and it was on wives submitting to your husbands. Or you're coming this week and it's about husbands loving your wives. And those things seem things very singular or maybe you're single and but the reality of preaching expository through Scripture is that we look at the entire picture of Scripture as it's presented to us, and we explore it, and we wrestle with it, and we don't skip through things or past things, and we deal with the difficult and the nuanced. And sometimes that means that we land on passages that seem somewhat kind of squared away or bookended right in the middle, and you just kind of wonder, hey, you know, this isn't some generic, you know, God wants you to love your life, have fun, have a lot of friends kind of sermon. It's it's really pointed because that's what Paul's telling the church. And so that's how we preach. It's how we like to preach. I want you to have a love affair with the word of God. Like that is the biggest My biggest heart as a pastor, as a preacher, is that you would have a love affair with God's Word. And the way to do that is let's look at it together. Let's fall in love with it. Let's wrestle with it. And so we do that and we come across texts that seem like they fit in a tiny little pocket. But really, they're part of something so much greater and bigger. And that's what we're doing this morning. We've been looking at Ephesians for 35 weeks, in and out, every single verse. We've been exploring it. We've been talking about its application and its pieces. And it's led us to chapter 5. And chapter 5 is a doozy. I mean, it's a real doozy. We have wrestled with things like sexual immorality. We've talked about impurity. We've talked about greed. We've talked about language and obscenity. We've talked about darkness. We've talked about light. And then Paul launches into this place where he begins to talk about Christian households. We've defined marriage. We've talked about the expression there. And he, and he launches into this place to basically say, church, church. One of the great expressions of the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to be found within the confines of the picture of the biblical household that God has set up. Meaning, how family is ordered is actually a picture of the gospel. And he begins to give specific instructions to wives and to husbands, and as we'll see in a couple of weeks, even to children. He addresses the church in its whole, and he speaks to these very different pieces to explain their role in this beautiful gospel picture in which marriage and the ordering of Christian families is a representation of the gospel to the entire world. And so last week, we jumped headlong into these verses by looking at uh, that end of chapter five there, where Paul begins to speak directly to wives. And I mentioned this last week, and I'm going to mention it again. I recognize that everybody in here is not a wife. And for this week, I recognize that everybody in here is not a husband, right? There are many of us that fall all along those categories or those kind of places. Maybe I want to be a husband or I want to be a wife or or I'm not yet or I'm a widower or I'm single or whatever these things are. It does not mean that the words that Paul has for us in these, uh, these texts, they don't fall on our ears or they don't matter or they don't mean anything. The actually biblical principles that are at play here are universal. And so don't make the mistake of tuning out of Scripture tuning Scripture out because one of those words doesn't seem to apply to your specific circumstance. So if you are not a husband this morning, it does not mean that what Paul is saying does not apply to you. So listen to it within the context and say, what's the big biblical picture here that is at play? Now, with that being said, he is speaking directly to Husbands, and last week he spoke directly to wives, right? And I wish I had time to kind of recap what all that kind of what we said and what we explored, but we don't. It's on the website, or you can go uh, to our podcast and you can listen to it as well. There, you can download all those things, um, but they're there. And basically, we explored last week that verse that begins with "Wives, submit to your husbands," and we talked about the callousing of our heart that happens because culture has perverted that definition of submission, and we feel threatened by our own identity or our lack thereof identity if we give in to this idea of caving my will to somebody else. And we talked about what a poisonous definition that is. And so we did a few things last week with those verses. We talked about how, and we took back the definition of submission from culture. We talked about how that, that submission was not the overpowering of my will, but the voluntary and joyful laying down of my will because I love somebody else and I love Christ more. We talked about what submission is. We talked about what submission isn't. And we explored it within the caveat of two really important things. We talked about wives submitting their husbands. One, to your husband. And we talked about the value there of submitting to the person in your life that God has given you, right, that is yours. This is not a submission to all men. We talked in depth about that. And then we talked about the idea done in the context of love, a husband that loves you, which we're going to explore this week. And the safety and the protection there. Within That this was not a play of power, but that God was doing something and is doing something really powerful. We explored all those pieces. So if you've got questions about that or you're curious how that puzzle piece fits in with this one, go back and listen. I encourage you to stand by all of those things that we said last week because, well, truthfully, they're just right there. Okay. That being said, Paul pauses and he's going to speak directly to husbands. He says, wives, hear these things. And this morning he's going to say, husbands, hear these things. And is going to begin to explain them in a way that is important and valuable, not just for husbands, but for wives and for the entire church to hear. Now here's the, the other sort of disclaimer I have to make before we dive in here. And that is, we're talking in a very specific context this morning. And that context is under the biblical definition of marriage I've been working with for four weeks to a husband and wife who have fully submitted their lives to Christ. Now I realize that not all marriages look like this. And there are things that Scripture says about a marriage where only one person is a believer. There are things that marriage talks about where some of these things are difficult or nuanced or all those sort of things or where there's a a situation where there's a widower or you're single or whatever it is, right? Scripture actually speaks to those things. But in these contexts of these verses, Paul is talking to a married person couple who have both submitted their lives to Christ. We have to understand that within the context. And we're working with the definition of marriage that we've been working with all along, which is marriage is between one man and one woman in which the two become one flesh. You're going to see where that comes from today. But that's the definition that Paul's working with. Comes right out of Genesis chapter 2. Goes all the way through all of Scripture and ends even in here in Paul's letters. We have to understand that definition because we're not just talking willy-nilly about worldly social contracts. We're talking about a biblical picture of man and a woman who have given their life fully and wholly to Christ and are called to something remarkably and radically different. That's where the context of wives submitting to your husbands and where husbands loving your wives comes from, inside the boundaries of that definition. So we need to hear it that way. Uh, Because it's important. Anything else is going to be a misread. And so this morning, we're going to be looking and talking and speaking directly to husbands. And I wish it were easy, but it's not. It is a real barn burner. And so uh, if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to chapter 5. And the reason I say that is because our definition, I say our because I've been married, 26 years, and I am a failure at most of these things. So like all the sermons that I preach, they are typically an explanation of what God is doing and teaching and showing me, and you just happen to be bystanders in the process. This is not a do as I do. I've done this. You guys should do this. Learn from me. It's more I fail at these things that I'm learning along the way, and so let's walk through these things together. And that's pretty much every sermon you will ever hear me preach is an expression of what God is teaching me, just kind of regurgitated back out, hoping that maybe some of these things matter or can be uh, gleaned by you. And that's kind of where this is. But for 26 years of marriage, I have yet to become a master of any of these things that we're going to talk about this morning in terms of loving your wife. But... And the reason it's challenging is because our definition of loving our wives and the biblical definition of loving our our wives are radically, radically different. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to chapter 5, and we're going to just kind of jump right in this morning. And uh, we're going to start this little mini-series, week 2, right? Rules for Marriage and Family, week 2, speaking directly to husbands. Let's pray. Lord, what a privilege it is to gather in this place. Challenging verses, challenging words, challenging texts, not because the words are so difficult. They're really not. It's just because it's so challenging to truly live. Lord, the things we're going to explore this morning are hard, but they're hard because we're not perfect. We don't do them well. We're really selfish. And yet, you love us anyway, and you lead us anyway, and you've given us a perfect picture of what this looks like. And that as men and as husbands, we are called to something holy, powerful. And you gave us this beautiful expression of what it is. And so today, Lord, this morning, all we really want to do is model our lives after you. And as we sit here this morning and we listen to these words, we recognize that they're not just simple words for husbands, for a singular group of people. They're actually a word for the church a word of what love looks like, a reminder of what you've done for us in Christ and how that should change every fiber of our being. Take a moment in your own heart this morning and just ask the Lord to teach you. If you're a husband this morning, ask the Lord to soften your heart, to not let you be uh, bristled or to not let you be standoffish or like you know these things or do these things, but to be open to the places where you've fallen short and willing to change. If you're not a husband this morning, ask the Lord to teach you, to remind you of his great love. What does this mean? Or maybe what do you long for in a husband? Or What kind of husband do you want to become? Or maybe a reminder of what you deserve and who Christ says you are. Just ask the Lord to teach you this morning. As we do each week, take a moment and pray for someone around you or beside you. Just pray for them. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Everything that unfolds here on Sunday morning is not about you. Be in the habit of praying for the people. We say these things every week. We mean them. Care about the spiritual growth of the people around you. Pray that God would move in them. Lord, we turn our entire morning over to you. We ask you to teach us, to instruct us, to encourage us, to convict us, to lead us. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. Amen. All right, let's jump right in. We are in um, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. We're going to go down through verse 30 again. We're speaking this morning to husbands, but that doesn't exclude the rest of us. So open those ears and listen, and let's see what Paul has to say to us. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one has ever hated his own body, but he feeds it and cares for it just as Christ does the church. So there's a pretty complicated and nuanced ideas going on here. We're going to try and simplify them down to get to the meat of what it is that Paul's doing and saying. But at the end of the day, this is really a one-point sermon. It's got a thousand other little kind of points that are going to um, kind of give it life, but it's really just one point. And that point is this, husbands, love your wives. Now at that point in time, all the husbands in the room collectively sigh, nailed it done. First sermon I've ever done perfectly. See you next week, right? I love her. She's great. Um, I'm really good at it too. Like I love her well. And so if that's the point of this sermon, good, great. And if I'm going to be a husband one day, nailed it, right? I'm going to love my wife. I'm not getting married not to love somebody. I love her, right? Husbands, love your wife, right? And if it were that easy, that'd be great. We just use our own definitions of love We explain what that sort of means to me, and we can love our wives each in our own way. The problem with that is that that's not at all what the biblical picture of loving your wife looks like. It's actually very specific, it's very powerful, and it has a ton of responsibility tied to it because our definition of loving our wives and the biblical definition of loving our wives are not even in the same ballpark, all right? And we're going to see that right away, even attached to the very first sentence, But that first main point and the point that's going to carry us through is husbands, love your wives. Well, how? Well, Paul goes on to say, just as Christ loved the church. And we're off and running, right? So he doesn't say love your wives kind of like Christ loved the church or in the same metaphorical way that Christ loved the church. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church, And the church in this capacity, in this picture, is the idea of any of those that would profess faith in Jesus Christ, meaning you, meaning me, as we sit here, having given our lives to Jesus Christ, the church across space and time, all those that Christ would die for and redeem is the church, the ecclesia, the body, the gathering of people, right? We're not talking about a specific first century thing just happening in Ephesians. We're talking about the collective movement of humanity that surrenders their life to Jesus Christ. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loves the church. That's pretty powerful, pretty hard. What does that mean? Well, Paul, of course, because we're talking to husbands, does not leave it up to us to figure out, but he explains it. And he explains it in this manner. He says, husbands, love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the first picture, right, of how we're called to love our wives has two specific pieces. It has the as Christ loved the church. And in case you don't know what that means, let me explain it to you even further. As he gave himself fully up for her. So how did Jesus give himself up for the church, for those that would profess faith in Jesus Christ, for you and for me, for the believers in Ephesus? How did he give himself up for the church? Well, in two main specific ways, right? He gave himself up fully by dying to all of his own interests. So we know what this definition plays out from Ephesians chapter 5, right in verse 1. Remember in 5.1 where he's talking about being imitators of God? He says this, Be imitators of God, therefore as dearly loved children... Right and live a life of love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice. So the picture of Christ giving himself up here is this picture of voluntary sacrifice. And that sacrifice is rooted in intentionality, and it's rooted deeply in the idea of laying down life. And Christ laid down his life in a couple of different ways. But in the first way, he laid down his life by dying to his own self-interests. Everything in the life of Christ was about the glory of God the Father. It was about laying down his own interests. We don't have to look any farther than the Garden of Gethsemane to see this at play, right? Jesus laying on those rocks, begging his uh, disciples to pray for him. They're falling fast asleep. He's pleading to God, knowing that in that moment, walking through the Kidron Valley was going to become a group of men with torches, And pitchforks and swords, led by Judas, one of his own, to come and arrest him, to take him to be put on a trial, to ultimately be hung on a Roman instrument of death and mockery and torture. Jesus knows all of this. And he knows that not just that point of death is the end. He knows that he is going to die for the sin of humanity. Jesus is fully God. He knows the weight of what is going to happen. He knows that he is going to bear the sin for all of humanity. And so he pleads with God, not what I want, but what you want. But Lord, if there is a way you could take this cup from me, right? Jesus' entire life, if you look at it from the Gospels all the way echoed through the voices of Peter and through the voices of Paul and John and Timothy, we'll see that Jesus died to his own self-interest. He was never about, hey, what puts me in the best light here? How do I look the best in front of the Pharisees? How do I make sure that what they see in me is the best possible scenario? How do I live a life that is most convenient for me, that gives me the most this or that, where I get to stay at these places, where I get to be seen in this light? Everything that Jesus did was a death to his own self-interest. It was always in a full obedience to the glory and honor of God the Father. So we see that by laying down his life, Jesus literally died to his own self-interest. We also see that he literally died physically, gave his life for the church. This is the picture of the gospel, right? Like that Jesus physically said, I will go to this cross, the Roman instrument of torture, death, and mockery, and I will die for the sins of humanity. So we know to be the gospel. Jesus voluntarily gave his life for you. He died for you. We see it in scripture. We read it all the time. We talk about it in church. We sing about it. That is the essence of why we gather, is that Christ loved you enough to die for you. So if we look at this context quickly, what we see is this, right? We see that we are called to love our wives in a way that Christ loved the church. And how does Christ love the church? He gave himself for her, by denying and dying most literally to his own self-interest and most literally physically, right? So why did he do this? Like, why would Christ die for the church? Well, Paul goes on to say this, right? Listen to what he says. He says, he died for her, essentially, to make her holy by cleansing her and by washing her with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain, wrinkle, or with other blemish, So Christ did something very specific. He didn't just die for the church or die to his own self-interest, and that's the end of the story. There was a purpose for what Christ was doing. He died for the church, for you and I, for specific reasons. One, to make us holy, right? To make her holy. Now, we've talked about this a zillion times, so we we'll won't go into it in depth, but the idea of holiness in Scripture comes from this Levitical call to be holy. As God says, I am holy. It's a Hebrew word, kadosh, which means to be set apart. So holiness in Scripture is not perfect, pious morality. It is not you never making a mistake. It's the fact that God calls you to be totally and fully set apart. He dies for you, redeems you, and has a holy purpose for you. That is the church. The church is the instrument by which God will show his love to the world. We have a holy and specific purpose, which is why Christ died for us. He died so that we might become holy. He also died to cleanse her, to cleanse us, to cleanse the church. Listen to how he explains it. He goes on to say that he, to make her holy, in the middle of verse uh, 26 there, cleansing her by the washing of the water through the word. So, There's a lot of nuanced theological imagery here that we could really get into about ceremonial bridal baths and ritual ceremonies for betrothed brides and bathing and all those kind of things here that tie into the gospel. But to keep it really simple this morning, the idea is this. Christ died to cleanse our sins from us through the washing of our lives, through his blood and through the word that the word of god exposes its truth its light its power that christ died so that we might be bathed in his blood set free from our sins fully forgiven and totally cleansed right gospel message here right that christ died so that we might be set apart and made holy and that he would cleanse us and forgive us and free us from our sin okay third thing he says there is that he died to present her Right? To present her as what? To present her uh, to himself, because of course he is God. Right, So he died to present her, wholly set apart, cleansed, as a radiant church, without stain, without wrinkle, without any blemish, but holy and blameless. So he died, right? Christ died to make and to set the church apart, to set you and I apart, to cleanse us, to free us, and to present us before God. This is that great picture, right? Because we are unpresentable before God. We are sinful and broken, and we are full of all kinds of garbage. But the reality is, is Paul tells the church in Corinth that Christ died, right, for us. That he made this incredible great exchange. For he who knew no sin became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So though we are fully sinful... Christ takes his own life and he exchanges our sin for his righteousness. He clothes us in righteousness. He cleanses us and he makes us presentable. Therefore, in that great and terrible day of judgment, we stand before God, holy and fully redeemed, presentable, without a wrinkle in our clothes, without a stain on our garment, without a blemish in our life. Why? Because you did something? Absolutely not. Because Christ did everything. And he presents you as holy and blameless. Now, all that to say, what are we talking about husbands and wives? Because we have to understand the gospel. And that picture right there is the gospel. For Christ so loved you, so loved those that would profess faith in him, the church that he gave his life, death to his own self-interest, most literally physical death, to present you, the church, me, us, believers, right? As set apart, as cleansed, and as radiant, wrinkle-free, right, blemish-free, stain-free before God Almighty. That is the picture of the gospel. And what what Christ says, and we're going to get to all this husband stuff in just a minute, just bear with me, says, husbands, love your wife just like that. Right? Like, mind-blown. How in the world am I supposed to do that? But that's the lofty call of what it means to love your wife. We're going to explain it in a minute. Paul has one more thing to say about this first point, right? That one point that we've got. Husbands, love your wives. Love your wives just as Christ loved the church. <clears throat> the second thing he says is this. Husbands, love your wives. Look at verse 28. Loves your wife in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives, as they love <coughs> excuse me, their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his body, but he cares for it. Just as Christ does the church. He feeds it, right? So, our one point sermon, right? Husbands love your wives. A little sub point, just as Christ loved the church. A little sub point number two, as you love your own body. This seems kind of weird, right? At first. But you got to understand our definition of marriage. If you jump ahead to just a few verses, we're going to talk about this next week. Paul talks about this idea of what that looks like in verse 31. He says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. It's actually a direct quote from Genesis chapter 224, in which God gives this definition of marriage, the definition that we have been working with for four weeks, where one man and one woman, right, become one flesh. And so what Paul's saying here is not husbands love your wife like you love yourself in that way that be kind to her like you're kind to you, or treat her as you would want to be treated. It's not even close to what he's saying. What he's saying is, husbands, love your wife just as you love yourself. Why? Because you are now one. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying that we are called to love our wives in the same way that we would love ourselves because there is no longer you. There is no longer her. It is you and her. You have become one flesh, one person. It's why divorce is so deathly and detrimental because it's not the ending of a social contract. It is the fusing together of two lives in a biblical sense in which a man who loves the Lord and a woman who loves the Lord have come together and they have fused their hearts as a representation of the gospel to the world. And Paul says, husbands, love your wife as you love you because she is now you and you are now her. Now, it doesn't mean we've given up our identity, but what it means is this incredible picture of two becoming one is inseparable. It's inseparable. So we're not talking about loving ourselves like, oh, I'm the greatest, I'm the best, I'm super awesome. We're talking about loving ourselves in a way that say there's a much deeper responsibility and deeper level of love here now because it is not just me. And I'm not talking about just caring for another person. I'm talking about the deeper level of responsibility because her and I are now one. Meaning what I do with my life and my body and my heart and how I live and how I treat myself and how I I explain myself to the world and how I do all these things are actually attached to her. That deep responsibility matters because we are one. The decisions I make are not just affecting her. Because she and I are together. We are one. They are us. And also... Because this picture has a reflection to the watching world. It's a deeper responsibility and deeper love because we are now one and we are a picture of the gospel to the world. This is how Jesus chooses to explain the gospel to the world and the picture of marriage. So the question here on the table is, right, is your marriage a picture of the gospel to the watching world? you love your wife in a way because you have now become one that you are an expression of how Christ is one with the church? Right? Of course, these are all mind-blowing things. All right. All that to say, let's talk now about what this means. Because this is where the meat really gets kind of, it really gets heavy here. Because Paul's explaining the gospel in a way that you have to understand first, right? So husbands love your wife, just as Christ loved the church. He died for her, most literally to his self-interest and physically to present her as holy and to cleanse her and to present her as radiant and blameless, wrinkle-free, no blemish, all those kind of things, right? And he said, and love her as you love yourself because you have now become one, marriage between one man and one woman in which the two become one. So what does this mean? I mean, how do we tie all of this together? So if we're actually talking specifically to husbands, where does this come down? Well, this is what Paul's saying. He says this, husbands, you should love your wives in, one of the, in, in all of these ways. And he's going to give us basically three that are tied into these gospel messages that we just talked about. So here's where I want you to really pay attention. And the first thing he says this, you should love your wife in a way that dies for her. Now, this is not in that sense that I'm saying, like, in that crazy, weird scenario where the guy with the gun runs in, you do this sort of diving jump, and you're the hero. Not like that, although just like that also, Right? But both, mo, both metaphorically and most literally in the sense, we are called to love our wives in a way that dies for them. And how did Christ die for the church? Well, he died to his own self-interest, right? And he most literally died for the church. So if you're called to love your wife in a way that dies for her, you are first called to love your wife in a way that dies to your own self-interest. Meaning, what is best for me? What paints me in the best light? What is easiest for me? What is best for me? What makes me look the strongest? What makes me puts me in the best kind of presentable light to the world? None of that matters. If we're dying to our own self interest, then the idea is what makes her look the best? What makes her life the easiest? What makes her life function the most? What says no to me and yes to the Father? In what way am I dying? To my own self-interest as I love my wife. I say this in terms of I'm going to die to the I deserves and the I wants and the I needs. I meet with couples a lot. Um, they come in, sit down in the office, and they're struggling and, and you know, I've done this for years, and they're having these issues and those issues. And typically it all boils down to those questions. Like a husband will look at me and say, Trevah, I deserve this. I, 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 I want this and I need this, and she gives me none of those things, right? And I'm a horrible counselor. Like, I'll be honest with you. Like, if you come in, you're probably not the right guy to talk to. Because I look at him, I say, I don't care. I don't care. You know why I don't care? Because your role as a husband is to die to your own self-interest, and there is joy there, actually. You're going to find, and I'll tell you, great joy when you begin to die to yourself and you begin to live for the two of you. So the first thing we're called to do is to Die for our wives most literally to our own self-interests. So stop asking all the wrong questions, right? Like, I deserve this. She should be doing this for me. Or I need this. No. No, you get to love her the way that Christ gets to love the church. It's a privilege and an honor, right? But there's also a physical piece tied to that. You get to die physically for her. Meaning that crazy outlandish scenario. Put yourself in harm's way for your wife. Literally. Right? Most literally, walk and live in a way that protects her. Right? You are called, as Christ did, to die for her. Christ himself says, greater love has no one than this, that he who lays down his life for his friends. Who is the greatest friend in your life as a married person. What a privilege it would be to lay down your life, right, for your wife. This is the call. You are called in a way to love her that you should die for her. You're also called to love her in a way that should produce spiritual growth in you and in her. Listen to how Christ loves the church, right? He loves the church in such a way that he gave himself up for her so that she might do what? Might be made holy, might be cleansed, and might be presentable as radiant and blemishless and wrinkle-free and blameless. Those are all spiritual things. They're things that are transformational. Christ died so the church might flourish spiritually spiritually. Now listen, you are called as a husband first and foremost to your own relationship with Christ. You should be loving your wife in a way that produces spiritual growth first and foremost in you. Meaning, are you spending time with Jesus? Are you in the word? Are you praying? Are you meeting with other godly men? Are you being accountable to yourself? Are you working to purge sin out of your life? Are you memorizing the word of God? Are you filling your heart and life with things that bring and give life? The greatest gift you could ever give your wife is to fall in love with Jesus. The greatest gift you will ever give her is to have a working and walking love relationship with Jesus Christ. You are called to love your wife in a way, first and foremost, that produces spiritual growth in you. In you. That doesn't mean coming to church. That is a piece to a puzzle that is much bigger. It means saying, God, I want to know you. I want to explore my relationship with you. I want you to teach my heart. I want to know you. I want to be free. I want to confess my sin. I want to be made new. I want to be a different man. But we're also called to love our wives in a way that produces spiritual growth in them. Now here's the thing. You're not her Savior. Christ is the mitigating and transformation power here. Not you. And wives, he is not your Savior. But we are called to love our wives in a way, in the way that we care for them and lead them and die for them, to our own self-interest and most literally physical, physically, in a way that's like mutual submission on steroids. That leads them to a place where they want to know Christ more. You are called to live in a way that presents her as holy, as radiant, as blemishless and wrinkle-free. How do you speak to and about your wife? Do you speak to her and about her in a way that presents her to the world that way? Do you talk about her behind her back or even to her face? Do you use words that destroy or words that present Do you point out the wrinkles and the blemishes and the stains and remind her who she is? Is that what Christ did for the church? Absolutely not. Christ died so the church might stand fully presentable and beautiful before God. Clothed in robe, scarlet free, right? Radiant. And Christ loved the church. Cared for the church, fought for the church, died for the church. This is what we did for you. Husbands, is that how you love your wives truly? We'll see. So we're called to love our wives in a way that dies for them. We're called to love our wives in a way that brings about spiritual growth, both in them and in us. And then the final thing we see there is that we're called to love our, love our wives in a way that changes the world. And I mean that literally, changes the world. I don't know why God has chosen the picture of biblical marriage to be the instrument by which he wants to show the world what the gospel looks like. But that's what he did. He chose marriage as the picture of how Christ loves the church. He chose biblical marriage between one man and one woman in which the two become one flesh as the unending picture of how Christ loves humanity. This is his picture of how he fuses his heart and life with those who have given themselves to him. He most literally uses that picture of marriage. It means that your marriage and the way that you love your wife should be a representation of the gospel to the entire world. I don't know if anybody's ever stuck their head inside your home. I don't always look like that. And when I say always, I mean pretty much never. Never. But that's the call, right? That's what we should be living towards. To love our wives in a way that changes the world. Let me ask you this simple question. Would somebody know how much Jesus loves them by the way that you love your wife? The way that you speak about her, talk about her, present her, treat her, demonstrate to her and to the world what that love looks like. Would somebody else say, man, Jesus must really love me. That's the goal. We're called to love our wives in that way. They're not punching bags or people to be berated when the guys get together, the old ball and chain, all those things, man. What a broken picture culture has painted in marriage for us. And they applaud it, right, when it falls apart or when men push against it. Biblical tragedy is what it is. Husbands, love your wife in a way that you should die for her, right? Literally, die for her into your own self-interest, to love her in a way that brings about spiritual growth, and to love her in a way that changes the world. Again, none of us have mastered this art, but every single one of us should be fighting for it. So as I started thinking of a way to really close all this out, I was like, how do we really do that? I mean, that sounds so good. Treb, love your wife in a way that changes the world. Like, what? Yes, great. But how in the world is that supposed to happen? Well, so what I came up with were were four things or a couple of things, maybe there's more or less, I can't remember. Four things that you can do today that I think put these things in a full-on practice as a a husband. And again, these aren't things that just you can do as a husband, but as as things that are biblical principles that are really valuable here. So, So listen, so the first thing is this. Ask your wife what you can do for her, and then do it with great joy. Something you can do today. It's a principle of what it means to die for her, right? What can I do for you? And then do it with joy. Not begrudgingly or hoping she won't actually say something or it's a kind of rhetorical question. Oh, I get around to that. Like, literally, what can I do for you? Absolutely, I would love to. It's a way of dying to yourself and dying for her, right? You could do it today. And you can mean it. And you can mean it. So what can I do for you? And I want to do that with great joy. So that's the first thing. The second thing is you can protect her. You can protect her emotionally emotionally and spiritually, and physically. And I'm not trying to make this sort of male chauvinistic thing. I'm just saying, like, look, it's your call. Die for her. Die for her emotionally. Something goes wrong, literally take the blame. Don't let her be embarrassed publicly because of something that happened. You take whatever that is. It's my fault. Not in a way that says, like, oh, look at me, the martyr, but in a way that just says, I don't want you to be shamed or embarrassed or at a place where you're compromised. Like, I want to protect you emotionally, and I want to protect you physically, and I want to protect you spiritually. Protect her. Make her live in a place or allow her to live in a place where she feels safe from your words, from your actions, from the things that you say and do. I'm not just saying protect her from the world. I'm saying protect her from you. You're capable of all kinds of horrible things. And so am I. Protect her from yourself. Choose different words. Speak differently about her and to her. right? Protect her. The third thing is, spend time with Jesus, yourself. Encourage her to do the same. And do it together. So, Fall in love with Christ. Make that a priority. You can do that today. Lord, I'm going to spend time with you. I want to know you. I want to develop a prayer life. I want to read the word. I want to change who I am. I want things to be different. I'm going to encourage my wife to do the same. I want her to know you and have an independent relationship with you. And then together, I want that to be part of our story. I want us to come to church together and go to a life group and be a part of things that matter spiritually. Like, I want that for us. Those are all things that can happen today. right? right? They're all things that can absolutely happen today. I can... Live in a way that spends time with Jesus. I can encourage her to do that, and we can do it together. And then finally and lastly, only speak about her and to her in a way that presents her as radiant and blameless and wrinkle-free. You can choose how to use your words. You can choose to only speak about her and to her in a way that presents her as Christ presents the church. Look, your wife's going to mess up. She's going to make mistakes. So are you. What if Christ berated us for every mistake we made? What if what he did was to shame you in front of the world for being a failure, for making a mistake? It's what we do. We make fun of our wives, right? We shame them for a mistake in front of the entire world. When we're the kings of mistakes, because it makes us look better or funny or whatever. It's not what Christ did and does to the church. He covers you and presents you in blameless and says, yeah, he's, he's made some mistakes, but they're all mine now. Talk about her and to her in a way that presents her as blameless, blemishless, and wrinkle-free, Right? Don't point out our flaws. If you are husbands and wives, if you are weaponizing your words, right? If you are weaponizing those actions, if you are holding on to all those wrongdoings and bringing them up and reminding them and telling other people about them, you are not just destroying your wife. You are destroying you because you are now one. Treat each other in this beautiful picture of mutual submission, but specifically, husbands, speak to and about your wife in a way that presents them. Is radiant, radiant. This is why this is hard, because the standard is impossible. The standard is as Christ loved the church, but that's the standard he holds husbands to. And it's not an excuse to say, I can't do it. It's a joy to say, I get to try, and I can do anything in Christ, because he is my power, and he is my sustainer, and I pursue him. And so, Lord, I'm going to love my wife this way, and when I blow it, I'm going to come to you, my king and my forgiver, and I'm going to ask for forgiveness, and you are going to forgive me, and I'm going to ask my wife, and because she loves Jesus, she is going to forgive me, and we are going to continue to love that way to show the world that imperfection is a picture of what the gospel looks like. Imperfection on our end, not Jesus' end. So here's all this to say. We wrap up these two weeks together, right? Wives, submit to your husbands, which is actually a picture of a joyful laying down of your life to someone that you love. And what does that love look like? Well, this is what it looks like. That he loves you in a way that would give his own life for you, that would die for you, both to his self-interest and physically. That he would love you in a way that would pursue and push spiritual growth for himself and for you. And to love you in a way literally, that changes the world. So husbands, love your wives. Let's pray. Lord, what a privilege and weight these verses carry. They are challenging and powerful, yet unapproachable and really almost impossible. But that's the great and lofty call of the gospel. What a privilege it is to love somebody like this. To love someone that you've given us. To watch two lives be fused together. And for wives, what a privilege it is to love my husband like this. That these biblical principles apply like, across all lines. Like I'm called to love him the way, same way. Lord, if we began to live like this as the church, love each other in these pictures of marriage and family, it would, it would change the world. It is so radical and countercultural. I can't even begin to explain it. And a culture will tell us, it tells us that marriage is just a social contract. Like, get married to somebody, share a few recipes, and you know, go to a few movies until it's inconvenient, and then try it again with somebody else. Where it costs me nothing and is a picture of pure selfishness. Where we fall in and out of love, like, what shirt we like for a Sunday morning. The reality is the biblical picture of marriage is bathed in responsibility and deep commitment. It's bathed in the fusion of two lives. It's bathed in two becoming one. It's bathed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's bathed in a death to myself and honoring the Lord and lifting up of someone else above myself. It's bathed in self-sacrifice and it's bathed in death. But you know what it is? It is this beautiful and joyful An amazing picture of full, abundant life just as the gospel is. And so, Lord, we pray this morning for those of us that are married or in marriage that we would be strengthened and encouraged. For those of us that one day will be or for those of us that have walked through those doors, Lord, or may never walk through those doors, what we pray for is that these biblical principles are at play. And we pray that the marriages within the context of the church would be a picture of the gospel to the world. That we would not cave to the cultural definitions, but withhold the beauty and honor of what you are calling us to, because the picture of marriage is the picture of the gospel. As we close our time in worship this morning, I want those truths just to kind of echo in you. And, husbands, if you're not convicted, I pray that you would ask the Lord to, to challenge your heart, to move in you. And, wives, I want you to hold your husbands to these standards. I want you to ask them to love you this way. You deserve that, and it is your honor and right to have a husband that loves you like Christ loves the church. And so, Lord, we turn all these things over to you, knowing that it's a full picture of the gospel. We would not know the beauty of marriage if it weren't first for you. And so, Lord, we, thank, we are thankful that you loved us, that you gave yourself for us, died to your own self-interest, and most literally laid down your life, To present us as holy, to present us as blameless and as free and as radiant. We love you, Jesus. Hear our cries. We close our time in worship this morning, celebrating the gospel of Jesus Christ as poured out to the picture of marriage. Let's stand together and close our time in worship.
1: Strong and perfectly A great I breathe To despair and tell spotless righteousness the great unchangeable I am the king of glory and of grace one in himself I cannot die my soul is purchased by his blood my life is here with Christ on high Christ my Savior and my God. What in Himself I cannot die. My soul is purchased by His blood. My life is hid with Christ on high. With Christ my Savior and my God.
0: Amen. So the challenge begins to walk out is to walk out of this place, not discourage, but encourage, encourage that God has given us this incredible picture of marriage by which we get to demonstrate the love of Christ to the watching world. And not to see our own failures, but instead to see where we can go and who we're called to be, both as husband and as a wife, to love each other in this way. Go in peace.